Amanda. Remember that time Bram Stoker was the Indiana Jones of vampires? time in historical podcast i'm your host amanda webb and i'm your host anna webb and this is a podcast where two sisters geek out about all their favorite moments in history and we're together for our first episode of spooky season let's cheers oh oh my gosh (laughs) i don't know if that was sonically very nice but foley real life foley (laughs) yes amanda is visiting me Mm -hmm. on this day so we're recording in the same room, and yeah, it's our first episode of Spooky Season. And we're already, we're planning on a little fall weekend, so this really worked yeah, out for us. A little bit of a fall weekend, I mean, at home, yeah. but who cares? That's what we usually do. Sometimes we go to mm-hmm. farms, or, yeah. you know, but n- not this weekend. Nah. Um, yeah, so it's Spooky Season, mm-hmm. and should we do a drink update, even though we're together? Yes. Yeah, well, we have to, because the viewers have to know. The yes. viewers, the listeners. We're- I'm doing great. <laughs> We are having something that we just, what's going on? <laughs> we okay. were, okay guys, we were, mi- we were just Sorry, about to be so mid funny. drink update and I got very distracted by a text message from my, our father. So, like, so dad texts um, Amanda right before we start recording and he says, um, I'm getting ready to go into a breakout room or something like that. And so, because we live our lives on, like, Zoom and Google Meets or whatever, we just assumed he meant, like, he was on a call. Maybe he sent it to the wrong person. Yeah. And he was getting on a call and was going to go into, like, a breakout room on a video call. And Mando was like, oh, sorry, wrong person. And he texted her back. And what did he say? He said, nope, it was for you. And basically, he's at this conference, and they're going to an escape room. (laughs) He called it a breakout room. But they called it a breakout room. (laughs) But he texted me that it was a breakout room, which is not an escape room. (laughs) breakout room that's so funny that was a lot that was a lot <laughs> okay anyway drink update drink update we um a while ago were shopping in um good old giant eagle john eagle as we say in pittsburgh john eagle mm-hmm. giant eagle um and there was this cheapo bottle of wine and it said witch's brew and i said i will be getting that uh-huh. and it's basically just like a an already made mold, mold wine, wine that yeah. you heat up. So we're having some witch's brew. And your your mug says witch's brew. And we're both having it. So pray to the podcast Ooh. gods. I do also have water on deck. Yeah. Which I feel good. helps. And we're only doing one recording track this time. I just opened the water bottle for, <laughs> for proof. proof. It's the same sound every time. I'm going to take a sip just so okay. the gods are appeased. Let's do it. Excellent. Thank you, podcast gods. Wow. Um, and also, oh, so fun for us. We have a theme for spooky season. We do a theme on a theme. And we planned it and everything. Yes. I'm so, so proud of us. For spooky season, we are going to talk about some spooky authors. Yes. And that's not necessarily to say that, like, they themselves were spooky. Although though mine at, was. Yours definitely was. Yep. Mine was at times, mm-hmm. but not entirely. Um, but that they wrote spooky things. Yes. Um, so we're going to start mm-hmm. with Bram Stoker. Yes. Who, of course, wrote the infamous <laughs> or possibly famous Dracula, depending on your attitude, I guess. Um, and my mine next week, which we can talk about at the end, too, but I'm going to do Mary Shelley. Yeah. So we've got two monster yeah. writers for yeah. our, our our theme this yeah, month. Yeah, that's very Which exciting. is really fun. The two classic monster stories. Yeah. So let's dive in. Let's do it. And talk about Bram Stoker. Um, so Abraham Stoker is born on November 8th, 1847 in Dublin, Ireland. Another Irishman. Another Irishman, yes. Um, his parents are Abraham Stoker Sr. and Charlotte Matilda Blake Thornley. Um, and his dad is like a civil servant, which we're oh. going to talk a little bit more about that whole world here in a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, he's the third of seven children and he is raised in the Church of Ireland. Another one. Another one. <laughs> Um, and he was, he's actually very sick through the beginning of his childhood. So for about the first seven years of his life, mm-hmm. he is really sick and nobody knows what it is or he's, why. He's the secret garden kid. He's, he's absolutely he the, the secret, secret garden, garden kid. kid. Great. Oh my God. I want to watch secret garden. We should watch you that always, tomorrow. You always want to watch secret garden. Let's watch it tomorrow. Great. I have it. Great. Of course I have it. 
Guys, it's also a late night record. This is about to be unhinged And this behavior. is my second glass of wine. Yeah, this is going to be some unhinged behavior and tonight. And kind of something else uh-huh. earlier. Um, so we're going to be a we're little We're in weird. for a good time. We're uh-huh. in for a good time this evening. <laughs> okay, so he's the kid from the secret garden. He's got he's secret sick. garden disease. He is often treated with bloodletting. Classic. Oh, classic. And he wasn't really expected to live for very long. Um, so he spends a lot of his childhood, like, kind of watching from his bedroom window. So unlike the secret garden kid, he actually got to see the outside. <laughs> yeah, very that. Um, and listening to his mother's stories of Irish history and legends. Oh, she tells him a lot of those stories. So excellent. you can see how early in his life he kind of gets these sort of The mystical. imagination of it all. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Also, I, okay, the sources for this are a little, obviously I looked at the Wikipedia page because I, I like the Wikipedia for the timeline. Me too. Um, and then I get embellishments and, help, yeah. and fact checking from other places. Exactly. And yeah. But I got a lot of it from bromstokerestate.com. Oh, I love when there's an estate website. Yeah, there was a very good biography on there. Uh-huh. So got some from that and then I got some from um, Mental Floss actually because uh, they had a good, like, yeah. you know, their fact I things. love Mental Floss. Those are great yeah. articles. And then we're going to talk about a specific article oh boy. later. Oh boy. So just oh, I can't wait. be aware. Okay, so like I said, he's never officially diagnosed but he does make a full recovery around the age of seven. So... They figured whatever it was, he's okay. He vibed out of it. Yeah, exactly. And I don't really know that there's not that much else about his early childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, Probably because it. he spent so much of it inside. Right. So in 1864, he enrolls at Trinity College. Oh, Trinity. Um, he's very sociable um, and he's a very good athlete. Huh. He's kind of like a big man on campus. I'm an athlete. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. an athlete. Super, actually. Um, yeah, he's like Christoph, Christoph, Christopherson. Um, and uh, God, it's reference city. Tonight. Yeah, yeah. Uh-oh. Sorry, you guys. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So he's like very involved uh-huh. with everything at school. Um, he serves in the highest office of the College Historical Society, which is that were me, the auditor. And he's also the president of the University uh, Philosophical Society. I have no interest in that one. <laughs> he is the only person in Trinity's history to hold both of those titles. Both of those positions, like, together. Huh. Um, Good for him. Yeah. So, as you can see, he's very accomplished. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, he's an athlete. He wins prizes in shot put and weightlifting, high and long jumping, oh. gym- gymnastics, and race walking. What? <laughs> I don't know. Great. Fast walking before just the- speed walking. Yeah, there's a- that's a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but wow. just like you're just a mom in a mall have making laps. Have y'all ever watched professional speed walkers? It's amazing. It's amazing. The they heel, like barely the, move the, their- in the heel toe <laughs> and the very aggressive arm movements because that's what they're using to get their heart rate up. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, he is recognized as Dublin University Athletic Sports Champion in 1867. That's an incredible title. Why don't yeah, we call know, things right? that anymore? No, no. You are the, the pomp, sports champion. The pomp, the circumstance. Yeah. Where did it go? You are the sports champion. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So in 1870, he graduates with a bachelor's of mm-hmm. arts. And then in 1875, uh, he receives a master of arts. Um, so he's very accomplished in his young life. Wow. Um, okay. So while he's in his school years... Um, he joins the civil service mm-hmm. in Ireland. So capital C, capital S, <laughs> yes, the civil service. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's basically just a, a group that carries out government work and provides like public services. Mm-hmm. So they work for the government, but they mm-hmm. also do whatever else they do it's, as a job. It's it's like um it's like the people who work at the Parks and Rec department. <laughs> yeah, like answering the phones and like right. like in the you know in the show. Yeah, yeah, they're like the people who answer the phone and say yes, I will go fix that park bench and <laughs> whatever. Yeah. So um, what he does in the civil service is well, first of all. He's still an athlete, so he um, organizes and competes in the civil service's annual sports competition. Ah, yes. You know. The company softball game. Ah, yes. The sports competition. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, see? Um, Wrong time period. Yeah. (laughs) We're not there yet. I know. I'm sorry. 
Um, but then he joins the um, Petty Sessions clerks. So they're court clerks. The Petty Sessions okay. are like um, kind of the lower level courts. So like. Okay. So like, cases our, like that, our district courts. Okay. Cases that don't require a jury basically got is it, got what it, I could it, gather. It, and okay. I'm sorry if I got that wrong. But that's like what I could figure gathered out. from my research. So, um, so he plays a really important role in the Petty Sessions clerks. He um, basically that would make a good band name. Sorry. I know it would. You're <laughs> like right. Like a really stupid one, but a it's good, good. one. It's good. I yeah. like it. Um, but he basically helps to expand this whole operation. Oh, cool. Um, this says, I'm just going to quote it. In short order, Brom rose to the head of his small cohort of eight junior clerks. It was soon recommended that the office be expanded and Brom be appointed to a newly created position of senior authority and independent operation, the clerk of inspection, responsible for auditing the offices of other districts. And now this operation Uh is like, Function like this. It function. Because, it's huge because they promoted him to that position that helped them to expand and the like whole, create the yeah exactly the functioning of it all. Yeah, fascinating. Um, he actually publishes his first book in 1876, and it's called "The Duties of Clerks of Petty Sessions in Ireland," and it's a manual huh. that formalizes the office's functions. Um, and and again helps it to expand. Huh. So he wrote, literally wrote the book on, on this <laughs> on the petty particular topic. Clerk. Oh my yeah. gosh, that's so interesting. Um, while he's in civil service, he's also a theater critic for the Dublin Evening Mail, and this is very important oh that boy. he becomes a theater critic. Oh boy. Um, but incidentally, the Dublin Evening Mail is edited and co-owned by Sheridan. L- Lefanu. Uh-huh. I don't know if that's how you pronounce. It. I've never been good with pronouncing that name. Um, but Sheridan writes the vampire novel Carmilla, uh-huh. which becomes like a massive influence yeah. for Dracula. So um, that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. But there, we'll get back to the theater. That's a really Carmilla is a, Carmilla is a really interesting story. Yes. Yeah. Um, he's also one of 12 founding members of the Dublin Sketching Club in 1874. Um, much later, somebody finds, like, a bunch of his sketches. They talk cool. more about it on the, um, estates website. Huh. There was a lot of interesting stuff on there. I highly recommend people. Look, they have a lot of clippings from, like, newspapers, articles, and stuff about him, and, yeah. So, we're gonna get back to the theater reviews. So, while Braun is writing the theater reviews... He meets the actor Henry Irving. Oh, yeah. One of the biggest actors of this time. Mm -hmm. Um, And they meet because Brahm had written a review of Irving's production of Hamlet, Mm. and Irving loved the review. Mm -hmm. So they become pals, and in 1878, Irving invites Brahm to move to London to manage his Lyceum Theater. Oh, yeah. And he ends up holding this position for like 27 years. Wow. He does so much different stuff. There's going like, to be more about the and Lyceum, it's, too. It's all, like, it, it is all sort of relevant, and you can see the through yeah. line. Yeah. But it's a very, very, like, if you were to look at his resume, you'd be like, what is what happening heck? here? <laughs> Who is this guy? It's fascinating. Yeah. So in that same year, before they move to London, Brahm marries Florence Ann Lemon Balcom. Lemon. Yeah. Good for her. Lem. What huh. can I say, Lem? Um... Another one. That was another <laughs> reference. I know. I'm so Woofy. sorry. We got a lot tonight. I was just watching Gilmore Girls. Yeah. Okay. Um, she is, like, considered to be one of the most beautiful women, of like, course. in Ireland. Of course. And actually, her previous suitor was the one and only Oscar Wilde. You mean the famed homosexual? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and actually, Brahm and Oscar Wilde had known each other like as students. Mm-hmm. So he kind of already knew this guy. <laughs> yeah. And was like, sorry. Uh, sorry. Stole your girl. Mr. Serial Girl. Um, exactly. Um, and Oscar Wilde was reportedly very upset about this decision. But later, he and Brahm Stoker like make up and they're... Um, they're kind of friendly Good. for the rest of their time on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, when Oscar Wilde ends up coming to the continent, as mm-hmm. this says, mm-hmm. um, he goes and visits him there. So. Ah, cool. 
Um, and on December 31st, 1879, Florence gives birth to the couple's only child, a son, Noel Thornley Stoker. Nice, nice. Um, a, a so, New Year's Eve baby. A New Year's Eve baby, just like my best friend. Oh, uh, <laughs> my best friend was born on New Year's Eve. Sorry, did it? Was that weird for <laughs> listeners who didn't know what I was saying? So specific. Sorry. <laughs> God. Oh, yikes. <laughs> Spooky season. <laughs> We are feeling spooky. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. Okay. So let's go back and talk more about Brom working at the Lyceum. Cool. So it becomes a huge theater. And mm-hmm. like I said, Irving is like one of the biggest actors of his time. Mm-hmm. So lots of celebs like to come to this theater. Uh-huh. So he meets a lot of very famous people, including authors like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, to whom he's apparently distantly related, but I could not figure out how. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and he meets Mark Twain. Um, and then he eventually makes a lot of friends here. And we're going to talk more specifically. But on the estate website, they have a whole page called His Circle of Friends. Oh, my god! So I just wanted to read some notable ones because they're interesting. This is, so, oh, my gosh. This is so interesting. Yeah, it's cool. Um, Winston Churchill. <laughs> oh, my God. Walt Whitman, who we will be coming I back to. I love Walt Whitman. We're going to come back I'm to I'm going to do Whitman. an episode on Walt Whitman at some point, probably. My or you might. You yeah. Yeah. Um, Mark Twain, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, first Baroness Burdette Coutts, Angela Georgina. Just <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. Okay. She's like a philanthropist, you know? Yeah. Buffalo Bill. No kidding. Buffalo Bill. Oh, my God. <laughs> Um, this picture of Buffalo Bill on the website is excellent. I know. I love it. Alfred Lloyd Tennyson. Mm. My mouth stopped working. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are just some really interesting people that were in his circle. Theodore Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt. Oh my God. Yes. Um, we'll touch on that again in a minute. Um, yeah. So lots of interesting people. Wow. Um, and, okay, so... Theodore Roosevelt. So because he was tight with Irving and Irving got to go all over the place, Irving eventually gets invited to the White House twice right. and he goes with him. So he gets to meet William McKinley and Teddy Roosevelt wow. there. Um, he's also, okay, so I told you we were going to ba- get back to Walt Whitman. Yeah. He's a big fan of Walt Whitman. Who is it? He loves Leaves of Grass so much. Who doesn't? He decides he's basically going to write Walt a fan letter. Good for him. He writes it. He's gushing. Good for him. To the point where some people read this and are like, was he into him? Like he, yeah. Like that's how like, yeah. Explicit it was. Um, Just about his thoughts. Yeah. About this piece of work, which itself is explicit. So, you know. Um, And so he writes a letter in 1872. It takes him four years to get up the gumption (laughs) to actually send it. Oh, my God. That's so cute. And when he does, Whitman writes back. Uh It's short, but he's, you know, receptive. Yeah. And then eventually they meet. They meet when he comes to America and they meet a few times and they become friendly and they would spend a lot of time talking and they would talk a lot about um, Abraham Lincoln because they're both big fans. Oh, yeah. So, when Whitman dies in 1892, he leaves Stoker a gift. The original notes to a lecture on Lincoln that the poet delivered in Philadelphia in 1886. Oh my god, that's so How cool so is sweet. that? I love that. That's a case where it was apparently okay to meet your hero. Oh my god, that's really <laughs> sweet. Yeah, I loved that. I really liked that story. I got him. a good bit of that off of Mental Floss, so the, there's a good little That's, that's a very uh, Mental Floss type of story. Mm-hmm. Like, did you know? Yeah, right? Um, in 1890, he publishes his first novel called The Snake's Pass. That's sort of late in life for a first novel for a yeah. famed author. Yeah. Not, um, not crazy late in life, but like kind of. He, he, and he writes a good bit, but uh-huh. he's not churning them out like some of the other yeah you know he also is actively doing a lot of other work outside of he is just i mean he's got a a big old theater to manage yeah um he's also on the literary staff for the daily telegraph in london around this time um okay so now we're gonna start getting into dracula dracula Um, How many dumb, terrible Dracula impressions? <laughs> I don't know. Uh-oh. Should we each knock out one good Dracula impression? You know, I'm not very good at it. I'm not either, but it's a good bit, I think. I don't really want to, but you can't. <laughs> I don't know. Well, now I'm now I can't muster it. I thought it would be funny, but now I can't muster it. No, I can't either. I just want to. You've go, drawn too much attention like, to it. <laughs> that's yeah. like about all I want to do. <laughs> Blah. Well, like that's that's the impression. It's just to do like that. Out. Yeah, yeah. That's the bit. 
<laughs> I've gone to suck your blood. It's stupid. Oh, God. Oh, boy, you guys. I'm so sorry we're like this today. Okay. <laughs> okay, so let's get into it. So, first of all, he is a pretty regular visitor to Cruden Bay in Scotland. Like, kind of famously. He's there all the time. Mm-hmm. And he visits there between, like, 1892 up to 1910. Mm-hmm. He visits there a lot. Um, he would stay for month-long holidays at Aberdeenshire. Mm. I think I said that right. Um, the coastal village. Um, and that gives him a lot of time to write. Mm-hmm. So he goes there basically as like a writer's retreat a lot of the time. Um, two of his novels are eventually set there um, at Cruden Bay um, in 1895. The Waters Moo or Mal. Mal. I've never I've never gotten that right. I've always heard Never Mal. once in my life. And I've heard it and I still am like I don't know. Who knows? I read it and I'm like, I don't I know. I don't know. Um, and then in 1902, The Mystery of the Sea. Um, but it's said that he started actually writing Dracula there around mm. 1895. The year is a little in question. Yeah. Um, while he's staying at Kilmer- Kilmernock Arms Hotel. Um, and the guest book with his signatures from 1894 and 1895 is still... In existence. That is so, very cool. Yeah, that's really cool. To have, like, the record of the time he was there writing. writing it, that's yeah. very cool. Um, but he actually starts researching for Dracula well before around 1890. Mm. Okay, so he, in 1890, visits the English coastal town of Whitby. And if you know about Whitby, you will know that this is where a lot of the stuff for Dracula comes from. Mm. Because while... Bram Stoker traveled quite a bit. He never actually went to that part of Europe where the story is set. He never went to Transylvania. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not like he was sitting there looking at this scenery, writing about it. He took all the inspiration for the place from other places. Right. Which Um, is so interesting because he based it on a story that has such a firm location. Yeah. To not go to that location for the inspiration is fascinating. Yeah. That's an interesting choice. But we're going to talk about some um, specific things here. Um, okay, so first of all, the original title of the book is The Undead, and the Count, the main character, mm-hmm. is from Austria and is named what we in English would pronounce as Wumpir or mm-hmm. Wampir, but in German it would be Vampir, Vampir. Mm-hmm. Um, until eventually he comes across the name Dracula, which we're about to touch mm-hmm. on now. I'm going to tell you that the source for these little facts here mm-hmm. is a Time article, Time okay. Magazine article. Okay. And we will be returning to oh this article later uh-huh. in a slightly more interesting context, okay. but I'm going to save it for okay. a little while. Okay. But I want you to keep this article in mind. Okay. okay. So, in the library in Whitby, he goes to get a book called the accounts of principalities of oh, i messed this word up before wallachia and moldova uh-huh. and it's by william wilkinson now according to this article this book was like not widely known about uh-huh. they didn't display it in the library you uh-huh. had to ask for it by name and uh-huh. they would only give it to you if you asked for it huh and apparently he basically just took it out flipped to something wrote it down in his journal and then gave it back like he didn't sit there and read the whole thing huh now later i read that he was like at dinner with another author, I can't remember who, and they had told him about this book, and that's how he found out about okay. it. But he went to, you know, get something specific out of it, and he writes, this is where he finds the name, the term Dracula. Okay. He writes in his notes, um, Voivod, Dracula. Dracula in Wallachian language means devil. I think I'm still saying that word right, am I? I have no idea. Um, I, we had the same problem yeah. when we were talking about Vlad. Um, Wallachians were accustomed to give it as a surname to any person who rendered himself conspicuous either by courage, cruel actions, or cunning. Right. So then in his notes you see where he has crossed out Vimpir over and over uh-huh. again and written Dracula, Dracula on top of it. So that's how he got that's the name. That's so interesting. Um, then he goes to the Whitby Museum, and he gets out a series of maps, and this is how he pieces together a route from London to a mountaintop in Romania. For the story. Yeah, for the huh. journey. So he, like, maps it out from huh. there. So that's how he gets, like, a realistic journey without having ever actually gone there. Fascinating. Yeah. Just by researching in his local library. Yeah, exactly. Huh. 
Now, this part I'm going to read as a direct quote because there's a lot of information in here and they just said it in the best way. Okay, so, quote, from the museum, Bromden made his way to Whitby Harbor where he spoke to several members of the Royal Coast Guard. They provided details of a sailing vessel, the Dimitri, mm. that ran aground a few years earlier on the beach inside the protective harbor with only a handful of the remaining crew alive. The ship, which originated in Varna, an Eastern European port, was carrying a mysterious cargo, crates of earth. Huh. While investigating the damaged ship, rescue workers reported seeing a large black dog consistent with a Yorkshire myth of a beast known as Barkas mm -hmm. um, escape from the hull of the ship and run up the 199 steps from Tate Sands Beach into the graveyard of St. Mary's Church. That is fascinating. Yeah. So all the lore for this very famous mm -hmm. story about this Romanian myth, which is also a real myth, yeah, came from this little like folk tales from this little English village. Yeah. That is fascinating. So he just combined his his um like research on the myth mm -hmm. with these very specific stories. Mm -hmm. The crates of earth is so It's very interesting. interesting. Um so, you know, I didn't write down a ton about like the vampire myths that come out of this book, but we can talk about them. All of um, them. All of them come I out just want to not get... all of them, but a lot of them come out of this book that have yeah. that have stayed. But before we do that, I just mm -hmm. want to get this last little bit cuz while we're talking about the research oh, yeah. and stuff. Um so before he writes Dracula, he meets a Hungarian, a, a Hungarian Jewish. I tried to combine <laughs> those words. ish <laughs> I tried to combine the words. A Hungarian Jewish writer and traveler whose name I'm going to have a hard time pronouncing. I think it's Armin Vambery, but I'm not positive uh -huh. about that. Um, and a lot of people think or thought back in the day that this man basically told a bunch of stories about the Carpathian Mountains, and that was part of the inspiration. Mm. However, Professor Elizabeth Miller, who basically becomes, like, an expert on all things Dracula. Mm -hmm. She's a very well-studied um, expert in this field. Um, she thinks that there was not really anything in their conversations relating to these legends. Um, by this time that they had met, like, he had probably already given the name Dracula to the character mm -hmm. and was already, you know, getting a lot of the details in place. Um, Cause he had been researching, like I said, like Eastern European folklore and, and vampire myths mm -hmm. for quite a long time before this. Mm -hmm. So there's apparently not a ton of truth to that. Mm. Now in 1972, a book is published called In Search of Dracula by Radu Florescu and Raymond McNally, which I believe we touched on in our episode did, yeah. about Vlad the Impaler. Um, and they are the ones who claim that the novel is based on, Dra on Vlad, Vlad the Third, yeah. Dracula, Vlad the Impaler. Um, but again, Elizabeth Miller debunks this and basically says, like, it all was really pieced together from scraps of different info. Um there are no comments about Vlad the Impaler in any of his notes. Mm -hmm. But it's probably, you know, he's researching these lores. Mm -hmm. That's where the lore came from. The, a, a lot of general vampire right. lore comes from that person. Right. And there are a lot of direct lines from the lore in the story to the So to he was that. probably so. reading about Vlad without knowing that he was reading about Vlad, uh -huh. right? Essentially. Or, re or reading about him in passing but not referencing him directly. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, but you're right. Like, a lot of the stuff, the vampire lore... Mm -hmm comes from Vlad. I mean, we talked about it. And and, and all of the in the culture that Vlad lived in and the people that he interacted right. with. Like that's the start of a lot of that the, that legend. But now in media what we use is Dracula. It's straight from Dracula. It's so interesting because I I watched um there's a Netflix series I can't remember what it's called, but it's these like little 20 minute documentaries. It's mm -hmm. like these short series documentaries where they just talk about, touch on one step subject. It's like a variety thing yeah. or something like, or somebody mm -hmm. like that publishes it. Um, and they did one on folklore that was really interesting where it talks about how like every culture has this 
set mm-hmm. of lore and it's all the same story and then eventually it kind of bleeds together and there's always like a thing yeah of course that brings it together that makes it last yeah so like the reason that a lot of old fairy tales are lasting legends for us now are because of disney movies right. because they collected them they made one they made unified story family friendly so they then, were easy to digest and now they can live on and we can go back and research the old ones because they live on right. i feel like this is what did that for the absolutely. vampire myth absolutely we hold on to a lot of the stuff that comes from this novel even if it isn't stuff that came from original lore or if it is stuff that came from original lore but the reason we still care about it is because this story so successfully told Mm -hmm. here is a vampire yeah Yeah. there were other famous ones too like carmilla is one too that's an original work of here's how we keep the myth running yeah i just think it's interesting like him writing about the bats in relation to the vampires uh-huh. was very specific and uh-huh. um, unique to the book. I yeah, think. not really, not really a huge bit um, of lore before that. Yeah, staking a vampire yeah. with a wooden stake, you know that yeah. kind of thing. So, all very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so about back to the novel. So Dracula is an epistolary novel, which is means it's written as a collection of like fictional diary entries Mm -hmm. so they're realistic but they're fictional Mm -hmm. um and that gives a certain well diary entries telegrams letters um ship logs newspapers so it's like real documents and he obviously gets a lot of this skill from his time writing for newspapers and and writing in libraries yeah just spending time in in real text right and it makes the story feel real yeah it gives that you know feeling of realism Mm -hmm. Um, the novel takes about seven years total to complete, um, and it's published in 1897. Mm-hmm. We know seven years because we know he started research around 1890. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. <laughs> Again, I didn't uh, know this, but Mental Floss gave me the deeds. On May 18th, 1897, eight days before Dracula is published, an adaptation of the novel is staged at the Lyceum Theater. Oh my gosh, that's cool. Like it, it is a disaster. But that's interesting. <laughs> like as a, here's my new story, you guys. Yeah, <laughs> it's very last minute. Oh my gosh. It's super chaotic. You have to like get approval to put on a show like this. Yeah. So they like rushed getting an approval. Um only two paying customers are in the audience. Oh, my gosh. And this says, quote, perhaps for the best, since the adaptation comprised over 40 scenes oh in God. total and would probably have taken a numbing six hours <gasps> to read, according to the British Library. <laughs> Oof. I mean, yeah, that novel is large. It's dense. Yeah. It, you know, it's not that large, which, again, we'll come back to okay. that in a okay. little while. Um, it's not huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have it on my shelf. Mm-hmm. It's not one of my bigger books. But you're right. It's dense. But it's that's, dense. That's There's a lot of I mean. information yeah. in there because because of all the lore. Yeah, it's very. Um, let's spend an hour talking about the sewers. Yeah, I mean, it's not yeah. as bad as Victor Hugo. Or, yeah, that's what um, I'm saying. Yeah, or uh, Melville. But yeah, it's not great. Um, okay. So, like we said, published in um 1897, and actually, it's pretty well received by readers at the time it's not one of those that like and his most famous novel was an never inst- popular or an instant hit yeah it yeah. was popular um so one thing about brahm brahm's life at the lyceum is that he would use a lot of that kind of influence that he had as the person managing the theater to let his friends promote their work yeah absolutely and that rang true for him, too. Uh-huh. So he was able to get it out there, uh-huh. um, which meant it got more, it was more widely available. So people actually read it. Right. Um, so it did have some positive critical reviews. Like there are article, many articles gathered that were positive about it at the time. But, you know... Some of it wasn't quite as positive. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so first of all, when Dracula is published, it is considered like a straightforward horror novel, mm-hmm. which now it would probably it's more considered horror fiction or gothic um, or melodrama. Uh-huh. It's not really considered like straightforward horror well our conception of horror has changed so much yeah but that's true of some of his other novels too so they kind of group them all together right right? um so critics eh, Uh waffle on it i guess um because horror is even horror then is really hard to be well received by critics well here's the thing 
they considered it to be a fantasy thriller. Yeah. Which they did not consider to be legitimate horror. Literature. Or literature. Oh, okay. So there were some, you know, those. Ah, that's where the negative reviews Okay, I see what from. you're saying. Okay, so we're going to move on from Dracula, um, but we will be talking more about it here in a little bit. Because, um, okay. So his other horror novels, The Lady of the Shroud and The Lair of the White Woman, of uh, the White Worm, excuse me, are published in 1909 and 1911, respectively. Um, jumping back a little bit, in 1906, he actually publishes um, a book called personal reminiscences of henry irving when irving when irving passes away Mm. and it's also pretty successful he writes a bunch of short stories too Mm. and then more novels than what i've listed here but um those are kind of the most well-known ones Mm -hmm. um brahma is also a strong supporter of the liberal party in ireland at the time he is a quote philosophical home ruler which means that he is for home rule in Mm. ireland but brought about by peaceful means which is very contentious at the time yes. the opinion the uh, the idea of home rule was contentious the idea of home rule through peaceful means was even more contentious yeah <laughs> um well the, we'll continue yeah. on that thought he's an ardent monarchist yeah which is unfortunate um which is not great for an irishman yeah and he did he does believe that ireland should remain part of the british empire and a monarchist from dublin too I know it's harsh it is that's rough but he admires the then prime minister William Ewart Gladstone because he knows him personally Uh and he supports his plans for Ireland so that's where he was politically um and this is yeah right about the time of the rising huh yeah oofa doofa um he believes in science and science-based medicine so you know, there's a lot of stuff about, you know, because he's a horror writer. He's like, so he was into the occult and uh-huh. stuff. And while he was interested in it, it was basically from a writer's perspective. Right. Not um, in his day-to-day living. Yeah, exactly. Um, this says he, quote, despised fraud and believed in the superiority of the scientific method over superstition. So he had a deep interest in it, but he was not superstitious. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting. It's kind of rare to find that pure academic interest in something like a pure and very intense academic interest in something without any of it bleeding into your personal life well here's what else is interesting because he is friends with a lot of people who are into it so he's good friends with jw brody ennis excuse me who's a member of the hermetic order of the golden dawn which is a secret society that you know studies the occult um, and he actually like hires a member of that group as an artist at the Lyceum. Uh-huh. So, you know, and, but there's no evidence that he ever joined the order. Right. And Irving was a Freemason. Oh, the Freemasons. Well known to be a Freemason and active. But again, no evidence that he took part in any of it. And mm. the Grand Lodge of Ireland has no record of his membership. Interesting. So, you know. Yeah, that's that is fascinating to to find him surrounded by those people mm-hmm. and deeply entrenched in those interests yeah, for his but own not writing, a part of it. but no well, interest in his personal. Yeah, life. he didn't believe in it. Yeah, so it's just a very rare combination. It is, yeah. yeah. Um, or to not at least have like a period of his life where he, where was he tried really it out. Deep into yeah, it. yeah, yeah. No, he didn't. Huh. Um. So his later years are marked by a lot of illness. And, you know, some financial tough times. Mm. Um, He suffers from kidney disease. And in 1906, he has a paralytic stroke that leaves him with a lot of vision problems. Mm. Um, And, you know, we talked about how Henry Irving had passed away. um, And that left him with basically his employer gone Mm. and less opportunities um, he starts looking for other income. He manages a Weston musical production. Um, he works as a journalist and he could, he does continue to write some fiction, um, but it doesn't really bring in much money. Um, in 1911, he appeals to the Royal Literary Fund for financial help, mm. basically saying he has suffered, quote, a recent breakdown from overwork. And he didn't know if he'd be able to really do much more literary work. Mm. Um, 
So then on April 20th of 1912, after suffering a series of strokes, Bram Stoker dies at number 26 St. George's Square in London at the age of 64. Um, His death certificate lists the cause of death as locomotor ataxia six months. That's an old school term for syphilis. Uh, Um, So that's probably what it was. uh, Um, Caused strokes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And it was very common yes. back then. Yes. Um, he's cremated and his ashes are placed in a display urn at Golden Green Crematorium, where he still is in, uh-huh. in North London. And later on, when his son passes away, his son's ashes are also added to the urn. Interesting. Um, it's so rare to see um, urns, uh, ashes preserved. Like that, yeah, like of yeah. famous people, because more often than not, they're buried, tomb, and yeah. then it's a headstone or yeah, a tomb that you can go and you can visit. It feels so odd to say like I saw his ashes. It's like not the same as going to someone's grave, like Jim you know? Morrison's grave. Yeah, <laughs> it's weird. Um. Okay, so we're gonna talk about a few other things here. Okay. So in 1914, um, Bram Stoker's widow, Florence Stoker publishes a short story collection called Dracula's Guest and Other Weird Stories because she owns the intellectual property now. Ah. So she can do that. Right. Um, and then in 1922, the first film adaptation of Dracula is released, and it is Nosferatu. Right. Um, where Max Schreck stars as Count Orlock. Now the lights were flickering <laughs> on and off. No, Nosferatu. Yikes, that was bad. Ugh. Yikes, spikes, my friend. Classic. Okay, so this film, whoo-hoo, Florence does not like it mm. because she was not asked for permission and she was not paid any royalties, and she How owns the intellectual get property. Away with that. Well, they don't because okay. she decides to sue them as she should, and as part of her demands, she wants. The negative and all the prints of the film destroyed. I feel like I've heard this yes, story before. I'm sure okay. you have. The case is eventually resolved in her favor favor in July of 1925. So you're thinking, how have we seen this movie then? Well, it's because a single print of the film survived, and then it got out there That's and became crazy. very well known. Wow, we could have never had Nosferatu. the first ad- adaptation of Dracula. Yeah. Now, the yeah. first official adaptation doesn't come out till 1931, and right. that is, of course, Dracula uh-huh. starring Bela Lugosi, who is, like, the most famous uh-huh. Dracula. But that's also just a very famous piece of um, film history yeah. outside of the history of the character at all. Well, yeah. the history of the character caused that yeah. to be the case, yeah. right? Yeah, so interesting. Um, 1972 is, like, the big year for Dracula. People get into it. Yes. In that year, more than half a dozen influential books and essays are published, huh. including that one we mentioned earlier. Interesting. That cl- made the claim about Vlad. It was, everybody got Dracula fever. Yeah, big time. People everyone got into everybody, everybody got the bite. <laughs> everybody got bit with Dracula fever. This and the only cure is more cowbell. <laughs> okay, now this is interesting. Okay, so we're going to, a lot's about to happen okay. right now. Okay? okay, I know we're near the end of the episode, but just hang in there with me, okay? Because okay. we're going to get some last minute drama-rama. Okay. Okay, so the original 541-page trans or typescript of Jack- Dracula is believed to be lost for many right. years. But then, in the early 1980s, in a barn in northwestern Pennsylvania, it is found. It huh. consists of typed sheets with lots of handwritten notes um and the title page reads the undead and it is listed as being written by bram stoker Uh uh-huh now the typecast is purchased by microsoft co-founder paul allen which is not relevant to the drama it's just you know that's the truth he said i would like that please." yeah i guess (laughs) i mean when you're a millionaire i guess Uh you can buy the when you're richer than god why not yeah um okay so now is the time remember this information about the Time article. The, manu- the manuscript. Yeah. Now we're coming back to the time article. Uh-huh. Okay. So this article claims, I need you to not look because okay. there's a twist. Okay. I need okay. you to not okay. look at the notes. Okay. okay. I'm not looking at the notes. I'm so, looking at the elephant on the wall. <laughs> I have a giant elephant hanging on the wall. Okay. This article claims 
that Bram Stoker did not intend for this story to be a work of fiction, but rather a, quote, warning of a very real evil, a childhood nightmare all too real. Now, they Stop. claim this on the basis, just wait, uh-huh. they claim this on the basis of, like, a lot of the things are based on true things. A right. lot of the details in the story, like we were talking about, and, you know, the similar myth in Iceland, I think, and they were saying that, you know, they're convinced that, you know, he, all these things, he thinks all these things really happened. Like, that's what people think. Okay. Okay. It also claims that, okay, again, I'm going to read a quote. Worried of the impact of presenting such a story as true, his editor, Otto Kilman of Archibald Constable and Company, returned the manuscript with a single word of his own, no. He went on to explain that London was still recovering from a spate of horrible murders in Whitechapel. (gasps) And with the killer still on the loose, they couldn't publish such a story without running the risk of generating mass panic. Yeah. Changes would need to be made. Factual elements would need to come out and it would be published as fiction or not at all. Huh. Now, even more drama. Oh my God. Because the article then states that when the original manuscript is found... It begins on page 102, meaning the first 101 pages are have been just lost out. Jonathan Harker's journey on the train, which is the beginning of the story, uh-huh. was apparently originally page 100 in the middle of it. Now, are you ready for the twist? The, okay. This article is written by Canadian writer Daka. Stoker. Stop. The great-grandnephew of Bram Stoker. Oh, my God. So. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Huh. Are you glad you didn't read ahead? Yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah. So, now, the, so the, the mythos is that he wrote this warning true story. He thought all these things were real and it was a type of evil that was permeating. Uh huh. Society. And then everybody said, actually, Jack the Ripper just killed a bunch of people and we so can't, can't freak out the public, that. so you have to tone it down. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Huh. Now, this author, the great grandnephew, also eventually wrote a sequel um, film. Uh huh. To. He wanted to write, quote, a sequel that bore the Stoker name mm-hmm. to reestablish creative control over the original, uh-huh. which is fair. Um, so he works with screenwriter Ian Holt, um, and in 2009, Dracula the Undead is released, mm-hmm. written by Dak Stoker. I think I'm saying his name mm-hmm. right. I assume it's French. Um, and Ian Holt, um, and they write, they base a lot of it on Stoker's handwritten notes and his journals, mm-hmm. um, with some of their own research. Huh. And then my last little thing here was just a fact that an annual festival takes place in Dublin, um, every year in honor of his literary achievements. That's but cool. just the the drama That's of the article. Fascinating. I was, okay, now I was doing my research, right? Uh-huh. I'm reading this article. I'm like, okay, this is int- I want, you know. And I read further, and they started. They were talking about, you know, he thought it was real, and I was like, I have read this before. What the heck is this? And then I was reading something else, and they started talking about the great grandnephew writing the sequel. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then I noticed at the bottom of the article that there's a little bit about that author. I'm like, hold on. Did he write this article? And I scrolled back up to the top, and there it was. And I was like, what the heck? <laughs> so it was drama for me, too, that's as I was really discovering it. Huh. It's very interesting. Fascinating. I love lore like that. Because you, you want to know why? Because that is um, stuff that uh, – people try to make up now yeah about horror movies yes like there are horror movies where the, like wild stuff happened on set and there's yeah, all this absolutely. lore about it but people will try to make that stuff up because yeah. they're because it's the whole thing about like you know the real people mm-hmm. who make the horror as cursed right. as the horror is right. but that's like the og yes and i like that it's like a member of the family telling it because it gives you this idea that like this maybe story they pass been that passed down. down you know fascinating yeah huh very interesting yeah huh? it's really interesting well, should we um, – I think we should do a Google autofill. Yeah, I feel like there's got to be good stuff for him. All right, let's do was Bram Stoker. Okay, well, the first thing that comes up is a feminist. What? Which, I mean, I'm gonna, I don't I'm going to guess 
Let's just law of larger numbers of the <laughs> time period in which he lived. I'm going to guess probably, probably not. Probably not. He might have been. But think there about his work. There is certainly a lens that you can read Dracula through that is a feminist lens. Absolutely. Sure. I don't know that that means he himself was a feminist. Yeah. I don't know. He might have been. Uh, was Bram Stoker Catholic? No, he was Protestant. Was Bram Stoker on the Titanic? Now, as I was doing huh. my research, Amanda, every time I would search for Bram Stoker, this would come up as really? one of those little questions, you know, like, what else do people ask? Uh-huh. It would come up. Was Bram Stoker on the Titanic? Babes, he died. I was supposed to say, what, didn't like, he die a couple years um, before it? No, it did, yeah, yeah. It was like he 19. Died before, he died before, like a few days, I think, before it or something. Huh. Um, so... No. He wasn't on the boat. Yeah. I don't know why people are... I don't know. Huh. I don't know. Um, a real person. A classic. We get that. it every time. Was he a real person? Um, was Bram Stoker British? Yes. <laughs> Technically. Was he English, which is the next one? No. no. Yeah. No. Um, was Bram Stoker... We'll end on this one. A good person? I love when people ask that because it's like... Is he a good person? I don't know. He's <laughs> been there. dead for years. Yeah. How I mean, am I like, supposed to know if he's a good for person? For the time? Maybe. maybe. I don't know. <laughs> How am I supposed to know anything about his morality? Yeah. How am I supposed I to figure know. that out? And even so, like, his morality, we're talking about 1800s morality. Yeah. <laughs> so it's your definition diff- of a good that's person that's is different. different. Exactly. I mean, the fact that he was a staunch monarchist, I'm going to guess yeah, I'm gonna probably go with not. no. Yeah. Um, Chances are, at least in some aspects of his personal Probably not. Part. Yeah. Right. So, you know, was he a good person? I don't know. I don't know. That's Bram Stoker. It's great. That was fun. I'm glad. He was that fun you to learn it. about. This was fu- a fun recording for us. It was. It was I hope n- nobody else feels absolutely bonkers listening to it. I'm yeah. so sorry. It, we got a little bit. We got a little weird. Yeah. Um, but you know what? It's spooky season. Spooky season. Tis, tis the season. And how are we feeling? It's pretty spooky. <laughs> you really hit that. Yeah. You hit you hit the punchline yeah. really good there. Yeah, pretty spooky. Oh, my God. Okay, so like we said at the top, uh-huh. next episode, Mary Shelley. I'm really excited. Now, she, she is spooky. She's been on my list for a really long time because yeah. she is so weird. She is She weird. is so weird. I'm so excited to talk about how weird she is. She is very spooky. Yeah. Um, I'm very excited for that. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, so that's spooky season. And then mm-hmm. you guys, we're going to have one more after that, and mm-hmm. then it will be our 100th episode. Oh, my God, that's crazy. Isn't that wild? Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll hit our um, anniversary this month. It's oct- We hit yeah. it in October. I can never remember exactly when, but it's in yeah. October. So maybe when this goes up. I don't know. Yeah, I can't remember. But it's definitely this month. So, mm-hmm. wow. Wowzy wowza. Big, mm-hmm. big month for us. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's a little bit of the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do have an episode planned for that in-between episode in uh-huh. November, but I'm going to we'll save we'll it. Save. Um, we, don't need to, we don't need to overwhelm you with all of our plans. Mm-hmm. We have so many. <laughs> that we never, ever make in this one time. We've made one too <laughs> many, and now so we won't we shut up wanna, about it. I don't want <laughs> to freak you out. Um, but if you guys have any suggestions for other things you'd like us to talk about, or if you have questions... Or if you just want to chat, you can email us at rememberthatpod at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter at RTTPod. And we would love it if you would leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to this podcast. And if you want to find me on the internet, I am at the real Anna Webb. And I'm at ACW Nerdfighter. Wow. I feel like we need one more cheers. To end it. Ooh, happy good. spooky season. Mm-hmm. And until next time, remember that time. Mm-hmm.